Judges chapter 4. We'll be looking at chapters 4 and 5 today. If you would join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you needy, hungry, and we earnestly plead with you, Lord, for your spirit to cause us to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, shining from the pages of Scripture into our hearts. We pray that we would hear our shepherd's voice and that we would behold his glorious face and be confident in his mighty power and victory. Help me, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up watching a lot of Bollywood movies with my grandmother. And believe it or not, uh, I used to speak Hindi, so I even understood what I was watching. And somehow, after sixth grade, I lost all my Hindi, and so I don't speak any Hindi anymore. But back in the day, I used to love those movies. And all of those movies, uh, if you're familiar with Bollywood movies, there's something unique as to the pattern that they follow. All Bollywood movies are musicals. They have story, and they have a song. Or should I say songs? And often, the songs recap the story. Basically tell you the story in a different way. I, I love how the movie uh, Slumdog Millionaire, which was not Bollywood, is Hollywood, also ended with a Bollywood-style song. And this pattern of story and song, and the song recapping the story, uh, believe it or not, uh, they didn't invent it in Bollywood. It's actually an ancient pattern, and it's found in our Bibles. Uh, it's quite a common pattern in Scripture that you see God's story and mighty acts of redemption, and then His mighty acts of redemption are celebrated through song. This is why uh, Christianity is a religion of singing. God's people sing, and, and the way that we sing as a congregation is unique to the Christian faith. You don't find that in other religions. I mean, you can go back to the book of Exodus and you can think of the great act of redemption that God performed. You read that, Exodus chapters 1 to 14. And then Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel celebrate God's victory with song. It's no different at the end of the Bible if you come to the book of Revelation and you see the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is filled with God's people singing. Well, that's what we're going to see in today's text. We're going to see story and then a song that recaps and celebrates the story, celebrating God's victory. And as we look through both the story and the song, as we encounter the Lord and, and, and this amazing plot through both prose and poetry, I want you, brothers and sisters, to feel great confidence Confidence in our God, the mighty warrior, 
and therefore engage in his mission with passion. We ought to feel great confidence in God and therefore engage in his mission with passion. So first we're going to go through the story in chapter 4 and then we'll look at the song in chapter 5. And I'm going to walk us through the story by meeting each of the four main characters in the story. They kind of function to drive the plot line of the story forward. We'll look at these four main characters and then we'll look at the song. So first the story, chapter 4. Before we meet the first main character, we have to recap the context. We have to get the context of this story. Look at verses 1 and 2. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. So you're quite familiar with this repetitive pattern that I've shown you in the book of Judges as the people of Israel go round and round down the drain. The pattern keeps repeating and the pattern begins with their disobedience. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the fourth time we're seeing that exact same language in the book of Judges so far. This is getting familiar. It's, it's kind of like the music of the story of Judges. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you're saying again? Yes, again. Disobedience. And, and really we see in that, really, don't we, the staleness and the slavery of sin. Sin has nothing new to offer you, dear friends. Sin continues to repeat itself with a kind of staleness. And it holds people in slavery, a repetitive cycle of slavery. Not only that, we also see here kind of the problem that Israel are having, don't we? We see that their obedience was merely external. They had these restraints of uh, the deliverers or judges or leaders that God raised up. And as long as the guy was around, they're doing all right. But then we see there, after they, they did evil in the sight of the Lord again, after Ehud died. As soon as Ehud's gone, they lapse back into their old patterns. This is the problem when their obedience was not driven by the heart, but merely by external structures of leadership. So the pattern we see, disobedience, what happens next? Discipline. The Lord disciplines them for their sin, as we've seen before in the book of Judges. Verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And uh, you might find this interesting. This is not the first time we're meeting a guy named Jabin, king of Canaan. In fact, if you go one book earlier in the Bible, in Joshua, the book of Joshua, you'll see that when the people of Israel came into the land, Joshua chapter 11, they encountered Jabin, king of Hazor. And guess what? Over there, they were victorious under Joshua. They defeated him and they completely annihilated this town, Hazor. It was a mighty victory. Well, what happened? Did he rise from the dead? No, this is quite common in the ancient world and even in the context in which we live where, you know, this is probably his grandson. 
or son or great-grandson. I don't know. But the names are common, right? You have one king named after his great-grandfather or grandfather, and there are multiple sheikhs with the same name and all of that. So this is a different Jabin, king of Canaan, and he's ruling in Hazor. But it gives us a picture, doesn't it? They were victorious in Joshua chapter 11. Here they have been subdued and conquered because of their sin. The, the conquest is going backwards. Israel is losing ground. That's what their sin has brought them to. Disobedience. They face God's discipline. And what's next? Distress. They feel the great distress that always results from sin. The people of Israel, verse 3, cried out to the Lord for help. For he, that is Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Did you notice the length of the discipline is also increasing as the people are growing more hard-hearted? They were eight years under Kushan Rishathayim, then they were for 18 years under Eglon, the king of Moab, and now they're under this guy for 20 years, and it is a painful 20 years. Uh, this man, Sisera, is a wretched guy. He's a bad guy, and he is cruel, and he oppresses them for 20 years, and he has all these iron chariots which are like tanks in the ancient world mighty weapons of war, and they're struggling. They're crying out. What's next in the pattern? Disobedience, discipline, distress, and usually we see deliverance. And often uh, the pattern goes like this. It'll say the Lord raised up. You saw that with Othniel. You saw that with Ehud. The Lord raised up a deliverer. Well, here the pattern is slightly different. What happens? They cried out to the Lord, and then we see verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. That's our first character, main character in this story. Right? I mentioned Sisera, we'll meet him again and see a little bit more about him later. But Deborah is the first character I want you to meet. And what do the people do? She's leading Israel at this time. I told you the word judge there doesn't mean she's sitting like some kind of a person in a courtroom, uh, resolving court cases. No, she's leading the people. And they go up to her. She is a prophetess. Look at verse 5. They go up to her. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, some people have taken that to mean that uh, you know, she was resolving various disputes and court cases. Now, I don't think that's the best rendering of that verse. In fact, I agree with the scholars who say the people of Israel came up to her for the judgment. For the judgment. What judgment? They cried out to the Lord. And now they want an answer. And this woman is a prophetess who is leading Israel. And they go up to hear from her what the Lord is going to do and what he has to say about it. All right? What is the Lord's judgment concerning our cry? What is God's response? They're going up to her to seeking that. And this woman is leading Israel at a difficult time. These were desperate times. If you go to chapter 5 and verse 6, it says that the, the highways were abandoned, the travelers kept to the byways, it was a dangerous time, villagers seized in Israel, no one was going out or in, it was a total lockdown half the time. And God had appointed Deborah in the midst of these desperate circumstances as his spokesperson to speak his word. 
She functioned as kind of a matriarch and mother in this society. Judges chapter 5 and verse 7, she says, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. So you ought not to think of her as a young warrior like Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman. No, this is an older woman, all right? Older lady. And uh, I do have to mention this here tangentially and address an issue that comes up with Deborah. Uh, If I were preaching this for the first 1,970 years of church history, I wouldn't have to go into this. But because of the time and uh, context in which we live today in evangelicalism, I have to talk about this. Some people take Deborah's leadership of Israel here in the book of Judges as an example for why they think the Bible says we should have female pastors. Uh, We don't believe that at ECC. We believe that the office of pastor or elder is reserved for biblically qualified men uh, who will lead the church. And so also the ministry of preaching and teaching to the gathered congregation. Uh, So what about Deborah? And what about this argument that she's an example for why we should have female pastors? Well, first of all, friends, if you look at our New Testament... The New Testament clearly teaches in no uncertain terms that the office of elder or pastor in the local church and the preaching and teaching to the gathered congregation is reserved for qualified men. Paul says quite explicitly in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And, and the reasons that he gives for that is the created order, right? that Adam was created first and then Eve. And so it's not good biblical exegesis or interpretation to use a narrative passage, a story, to overturn the clear teaching of Scripture, which we see in a kind of more prescriptive passage, right? The story, the narrative is there to tell us what happened, not to tell us what should happen, all right, or what must happen. You also have to think about the context of Judges, the book of Judges, Think, think about Israel at this time. They're in decline. And, and the absence of male leadership among the people of God is not an ideal situation. Things are topsy-turvy. All right? It's because of the abdication of leadership by the men and the absence of male leaders that Deborah has been thrust into this role. Uh, God says this in Isaiah chapter 3 and uh, verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 12 as part of his judgment upon his people. He says, I will make boys their princes, infants shall rule over them. My people, infants are their rulers and women rule over them. So you ought not to take what's kind of a topsy-turvy and non-ideal situation and then say that's a prescription for what the New Testament church should look like. In fact, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 1, you'll see there that Josiah was uh, king of Israel. He became king of Israel at eight years old. And if you read of Josiah's life, you'll see that he was a godly and good king. And he brought uh, many blessings to the people of Israel. He brought reform and revival. God used him. So you don't look at an eight-year-old guy leading the people of Israel and then say, okay, so we should now appoint eight-year-olds as pastors in the church, do you? And in the same way, we ought not to look here at Deborah and say this becomes a model for women being pastors, all right? Uh, No, throughout the Old Testament, she is a prophet, a prophetess, and if you look throughout the Old Testament and even early into the New Testament, you'll see that uh, there was this office, the prophetic office, and both men and women were appointed to that office, 
And the work of those prophets was to directly transmit the words of God. All right? They receive God's revelation and they directly proclaim God's revelation to the people. Now, that's an office, the office of prophet, I don't believe, continues in the same sense today with the completed revelation of God that we've received in Scripture. No one speaks with the same authority as the Bible today. You'll also notice, however, although both men and women were prophets, the office of priest was reserved for men. So there are particular roles and designations that God gives to his people. And of course, we believe in equality between men and women, both created in God's image. But that doesn't mean equivalency. All right? We're not all the same in the way that we do things. And so it's really a misreading and misinterpretation to look at judges and to say, because Deborah was leading, therefore we ought to have female pastors. I agree with one scholar who says this. He says, in their enthusiasm to subvert male leadership, such interpretations subvert the authority of God and obscure the message he seeks to communicate through this text. End quote. Deborah is unexpected and surprising leading the people of Israel in a declining and messed up nation that lacks faithful male leadership. And we've got to be clear, she's not doing anything wrong here. She's been appointed by God and raised up by Him in the midst of this desperate and pathetic situation. And all through the story of Scripture, all through the Bible, we see how the Lord uses godly and gifted women in crucial and powerful ways to advance his kingdom and to fulfill his glorious purposes of redemption. Deborah is one such woman. And she's a remarkable woman, a mother in Israel, a woman of great trust in God and absolute confidence in God's word. In fact, she upholds the created order of male leadership. If you look at how she's named there, she's named Deborah, wife of Lapidot. Her husband's name is given. Uh, that indicates that she was under his authority. He was the head of her house. Uh, and then when God's people have to go into battle, when deliverance is necessary, what does she do? She doesn't lead them out in battle. She summons Barak. So even as we look at Deborah, I just want to stop and say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for the many Deborahs that he has given us at our church who serve spiritually as mothers in Israel, as mothers in the body of Christ. I want to say as the senior pastor of this church, and I speak for our elders, that we should promote and encourage the gifts and contributions of women in every area of church life that the Bible permits and encourages. And as the father of three daughters, I want to say we want women to flourish as disciples of Jesus We want them to glorify God as Christians, as church members, as disciple makers, as evangelists, wives, mothers, and singles. We want to see their gifts and their unique contributions on full display in the body of Christ and in all of life. And so I want to speak to our dear sisters in this church who so faithfully serve in so many ways. You are a blessing to the heart of your pastor. And I thank God for the many examples of godliness that my daughters have growing up in this body. Dear mothers in Israel, we praise God for your ministry. And I want to encourage you, press on, 
Keep on. Keep glorifying God, building up His church through your amazing and eternally valuable ministry of teaching, praying, loving, serving, and nurturing. And I want to say to the members of ECC, at tonight's members meeting, I'll have a couple of exciting announcements uh, from the elders in this regard of ways that we want to further highlight and encourage the indispensable role of women in the body of Christ, of those who are mothers in Israel, spiritually in the local church. I didn't tell you the meaning of Deborah's name, and this is interesting as we read the story. Her name means honeybee. Uh, and what you'll see here is that this honeybee has a sting that God will give the enemy. And her sting is going to be like lightning, summoned by God's word. Which brings us to our next character in the story, Barak, not Obama. <laughs> Barak. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak's name means Lightning. Right? So Deborah is summoning this man who's named Lightning, and she declares to him God's word, God's promise of deliverance. Uh, it's very interesting. There's a parallel there in the text. If you look at what she says to him, the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded Barak saying, go gather your men. All right? And it's the same exact word in the original where he says in verse 7, I will draw out, it, it's the same word that's translated gather in the previous verse, I will gather Sisera. So God is saying to Barak, you gather your army, I'll gather Sisera's army. I will lure him out and I'm going to give you victory. How does Captain Lightning respond to God's word? Well, he doesn't exactly live up to his name, at least not at first. What does he say in verse 8? Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. <laughs> Friends, that's, that's not a good response. He's just heard the word of the Lord. When God says go, you say yes. When God says go, you do not say if. Never a good idea. So Barak, Captain Lightning, here, is weak in faith. And he's being kind of a, a sissy or a pansy, you might say. Right? He's, he's not embracing God's call to lead. He's, he's not doing what God has summoned him to do. He's being chicken. What is Deborah's response? What is uh, the, the result of Barak being a sissy? She said, I will surely go with you. Right? Okay, you want mama to come along, I'll, I'll come with you. <laughs> Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So, there will be victory, but Barak will not get the glory for the victory. There's kind of a judgment on him there. And, and there is this suspense here. She says, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You're expecting it's going to be Deborah. We'll have to wait and see. 
Even as we look at Barak, I just want to address my dear brothers and the men in this congregation. Evangelical Christianity around the world today is suffering from a crisis of manhood. Now, I've served in ministry in my home country in India. I've served in ministry in the United States. I've served here in the UAE this week. I was reading an author who is serving in Australia. And even he notes in his context this crisis of manhood. Where are the men in the churches acting and walking as men of God? You know, when I was in the States, uh, we used to meet with uh, a professor for prayer, and we had a, a single, this was both men and women, meeting with our professor for prayer. He's one of my favorite Old Testament professors. And uh, one of the single ladies said, uh, please pray for me, I, I want to be married. And, uh, you know, it's a seminary and Bible college context. There's a lot of single men around. And my professor looked at her and he said, hmm, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. I found that to be true, and I found that to be the case all over the world with regard to the men. You know the largest missionary organization in the world has over 3,500 missionaries on the mission field? And you know the applications coming in of singles who want to go to the mission field? The women outnumber the men four to one. That ought to sober you, brothers. As one person said, the great temptation for men is not to do evil, but to do nothing. We become passive like Adam, standing around, twiddling our thumbs, wasting our time with screens and nothingness. Praise God for His grace. You know, I want to talk about a time where I was a little bit like this guy, Barak. 2010, my wife and I, Nishikra and I, we didn't have kids back then. We were sitting in a hotel room in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, where we had come on a preview visit to a seminary that had a nice job in financial services in Toronto. And uh, for a long time, we had desired, I had especially desired, to serve the Lord vocationally full-time. And uh, I had been affirmed in that by my local church. All, all of the people in the church said this was very clear. We, we think that you should do this. We think this is a good aspiration. You should go forward. Uh, we came to the seminary uh, throughout that whole uh, four-day visit. It was very clear to both of us that this is what we should do, that this was the next step for us, that I should leave my job and we should move down here for me to be trained in uh, teaching the Bible. And, um, you know, we're sitting in the hotel room and Nishika says, all right, let's go back. Let's do what we need to do. Let's pack our bags and let's go. And I was sitting there saying, well, maybe we should wait a couple of years. And, uh, you know, this has to happen, and this has I'm sitting there with a note, notepad and a pen and, and writing down all of the different things that I'm thinking about. And she said to me, why are we wasting our time? You know what the Lord wants you to do. You know what you want to do. Why are you playing around? And in that moment, I sat there and I wondered, why am I wasting my time? And the Lord in His grace changed my heart. And four months later, we were at seminary. Thankfully, Commander Lightning Barak had a change of heart. As Deborah spoke to him the word of God and spurred him on, he had a change of heart, 
and all of the men who were missing in Israel, all of a sudden they show up, right? In chapter 5, verse 2, you'll see that they, she celebrates this in the song. She says in chapter 5, verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, that the men offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. That's why Barak, by the way, is named in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. Because though his faith faltered, when it mattered, God's word stirred up his faith. And so I want to speak to you, brothers, hear this word from God this morning. By the power of God's word, my dear Christian brothers, by his grace, by his mighty spirit at work within you through Christ, Christian men, brothers, man up, grow up, lay down your life, serve sacrificially like your Savior, lead boldly, Trust God confidently and live accordingly. Be a man. You know, I was speaking to a brother from another church um, recently, and he was telling me uh, they were doing setup one time, and he was really grieved to see the men kind of standing idly by, and women were setting up and lifting things. And he said, I'm going to stop the meeting. And he said, you know, all the women, please leave here. Men, get to work. Brothers, be a man. Serve in the setup team. Go be a man and change diapers in the nursery. Be a man and study and memorize and teach God's word. Give yourself to the study of God's word. Internalize it and be a man and banish every unclean thing from your life and from your eyes. As John Wesley said, listen to what John Wesley said. He said, give me hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell. Men of ECC, do we want to shake the gates of hell for the glory of God and Christ? Amen. Look at what happens. Barak has a change of heart, verse 10. Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. What happens next? You're expecting the battle, right? No, all of a sudden, the story shifts and gives you the strange and unexpected detail in verse 11. He's coming up, Barak is coming up with 10,000 warriors, and suddenly, verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. That's a very significant verse. But you're going to have to wait and hold on for a little while to understand its significance. The author is creating some suspense for us. In the meanwhile, we're getting ready for the battle, and we meet our third character. He's been introduced before. Now you meet him face-to-face, Sisera. Sir. Ominous sounding name, Sisera, verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out, verse 10, he called out, uh, verse 13, all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harashat Hagoyim to the river Kishon. There's a parallel there between verse 10 and verse 13. In verse 10, it says, Barak called out, and 10,000 men came. Here, Sisera called out, and all of his chariots came, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him. And this looks like a complete mismatch, by the way. And it looks like a strange battle strategy. Because Barak and these 10,000 foot soldiers, they're all assembled at the top of Mount Tabor. And if you know what Mount Tabor looks like, it's like an upside-down bowl. Okay? So they're up there. They don't have weapons. If you read chapter 5, verse 8, it says that they, there were no swords or shields to be found in Israel. Okay, remember last week we've met our friend Shamgar. He had to use an ox goad to take down the Philistines. So they don't have weapons. It's these 10,000 foot soldiers 
who knows with what, maybe farm equipment, and they're at the top of this mountain, which is like an upside-down bowl, and they're surrounded by iron chariots. This is a suicide mission. They don't stand a chance. You know, sometimes when I'm driving to the church building, and this is going to be kind of gruesome, uh, there's a stretch here on Karama that I call uh, the, the pigeon death stretch. Right? Uh, maybe some of you experience, I'm going about 80 kilometers an hour, and sometimes a dove will fly by, uh, or he'll land on the street, and I'm going too fast to swerve or to do anything. And so it's my Pajero versus the pigeon. And, and there's only one winner in that fight. Right? The pigeon gets crushed. It's rough. That's what these guys are like. 10,000 foot soldiers are like pigeons facing iron chariots, pajeros. This is, this is like, you know, Sisera has the tanks of the ancient world. These guys are going to get crushed. But God, God loves a disadvantage, doesn't he? Look at what happens, verses 14 and following. Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. They're all running and charging. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Look, look at verse 16. Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Haroshet Hagaim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Absolute annihilation. Total knockout. Complete victory. How? How did the Lord do this? Well, you'll have to wait for the song to see. In the meanwhile, the camera kind of pans from the battle where Israel has totally won and focuses on one man. Look at verse 15. The mighty Sisera, verse 15, second half, got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So this guy is running away. Sisera runs and runs. He abandons the battle. He abandons his iron chariot and he runs. And he runs all the way to our fourth character in the story. Re remember verse 11 about this guy, Heber, the Kenite, who pitched his tent? Now you'll see why it's relevant. We meet our fourth character, and this is a woman named Yael. Yael. Verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Uh, this man, Heber, had separated from his kinsmen who were, uh, uh, had been assimilated into Israel and he's gone and pitched his tent off this side and he has peace with Jabin. So he is in alliance with Jabin, the king of Canaan. But look at what his wife does, verse 18. And Yael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. She sees him in a complete panic, sweating, huffing, puffing, running, running. She says, come over here. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. The mighty Sisera is now shown to be a sissy. 
It's really interesting. Barak starts off as this timid sissy, and then he becomes a mighty captain by the word of God. Sisera has been this big bully who's been oppressing the people cruelly for 20 years, and now he is reduced by God to be nothing more than a little boy who is quivering in this tent. He abandoned his troops and his chariot. He fled from the battle scene, and now he is trembling like a scared little boy, and Yael is treating him in this kind and motherly way, giving him milk, covering him with a rug. Oh, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And then he said to her, verse 20, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. By the way, that question, is anyone here, in the original it says, is a man here. So stand by the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is there a man here, say no. And of course, the author of Judges there wants us to catch the joke and see the irony. Because uh, there might be a man who comes and he's going to ask, is there a man here? And Yael is supposed to say no. And that answer is the truth. Because the guy who's inside is no longer a man. He's just a little boy. There is not a man here. And what does she do after covering him? He drinks the milk. He's exhausted from running. He's having this adrenaline crash. Milk has a lot of uh, sugar in it, you know. And, and it's kind of like a nice um, bedtime drink. She puts him to bed. Verse 21. And while he's sleeping, Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. Bang! So he died. I told you the book of Judges is pretty brutal. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, now we see the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy. Yahel went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And, and Barak might get excited. I'm going to catch this guy, Sisera. He went into a tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. The woman has crushed the head of Sisera the serpent leader of the enemies of God. This calls us back all the way to Genesis chapter 3.15, which says that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And we're seeing a picture of that here as this woman crushes this enemy's head. Barak, of course, doesn't get the glory because of his initial faltering faith. The glory of the victory is not to him. But it's not that Yael has won the victory either. She's played a crucial role. She has crushed this guy's head. But the victory and the glory is not hers. No, you're seeing all of these three characters, Deborah, Barak, and Yael, they play their parts. To who does the glory belong? No, look at who the real warrior hero of the story is. It's Yahweh, the Lord God. Go back up to verse 7. Look at what he says. I will draw out Sisera. I will give him into your hand. Verse 9, look at what Deborah said. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. In, in verse 14, notice what Deborah says to Barak. Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. And as the author brings the story to the close, look at what he says. So on that day, verse 23, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. The Lord delivered his people. He gave them victory once again. And so they see it fit as we must always see it fit 
to praise him and glorify him through song. So that's the story. But now we're going to look at the song. And the song, like many songs in Bollywood, also does an instant replay. Right? Or, or think of this as a sports match where you, you, you see a goal being scored and then there's a slow motion instant replay with commentary. Right? So you're going to get the explanation, you're going to get celebration, explanation of what happened, and application for us. Right? Application for us. Remember our goal is that we would feel great confidence in our God. And I'm going to show you three charges from this song that result in confidence in God. First, we must praise the Lord's mighty power. That's what this song teaches us. Praise the Lord's mighty power. Look at chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Sisera with his iron chariots thought that he was coming against a puny army of 10,000 untrained Israelite foot soldiers with pitchforks in their hand, assembled with this silly battle strategy, all of them on the top of Mount Tabor, ripe for slaughter. That's what he thought. Just like Pharaoh thought when he was coming out with all his chariots and armies against these Israelites who had no weapons in their hand, who were trembling at the shore of the Red Sea. And the same God who acted in the Exodus to swallow up the mightiest army of the greatest superpower in the ancient world shows up on Mount Tabor. He comes out and the mountains quake, the earth trembles, the heavens pour down water. This is our God entering the battle, fighting the fight for his people. Look at verses 19 and following. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their course they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, the galloping of his steeds. What is happening here? Sisera and his chariots are at the base of the mountain. Israel's soldiers are running down with nothing in their hands almost. And God enters the fight. And this little stream that's there, it's not, not, not think of it as a big river like the mighty Jordan River or even like the Red Sea. This was a small stream, the Kishon. It begins to overflow. There's, there's a rainstorm, there's a thunderstorm. Remember Barak's name was lightning. And now there's a thunderstorm. The heavenly armies itself come into the fight, armies that you don't even see. And Sisera and his entire army is in confusion. And as the river overflows and, and the mud gets wet, what happens to those chariots? They become a liability. They become useless in the fight. It's over for these guys. But I also want you to see something else here. There's a storm that takes place, right? The heavens drop, the clouds dropped water. Uh, there's such a severe storm that the, this small stream overflows and sweeps over the horses and chariots. Do you know who the god of the storm was in Canaan? 
they believed that the storm god was Baal. That was the Canaanites' god. And just like God brought judgment upon the gods of Egypt, here Yahweh is showing, I am the Lord of the storm. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the one true God. He is the Lord of the river, the Lord of the storm, the Lord of the stars, the Lord of the armies, the one and only Lord of heaven and earth. To Him alone belongs the power, the glory, the battle is His, and He must be praised for His mighty power. There is no one like our God. And friends, it's the same God who leads us, His people, today. As we look at this world, we might feel like 10,000 foot soldiers with nothing in our hands on the top of Mount Tabor, weak and helpless. But this almighty God is the one who empowers us to wage war against our sin, against the powers of darkness, and to advance in mission proclaiming His gospel and His victory. He is to be praised. He is worthy to receive glory through our singing and through our lives. Because He is the mighty Lord of heaven and earth. We are His people. And so we must not only praise His mighty power, but here's our second charge from this song. We must also participate in His holy mission. We must participate in the Lord's holy mission. That's what these men did. Look at verses 2 and following in the song. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, blessed the Lord. Remember, these were desperate times. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers seized in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, when they departed from God, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Look at verse 12 and following. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then march down the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord, march down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they march down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir, they march down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Verse 18, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. These Israelites... As they heard God's word, as they heard God's call, God's word moved them through Deborah and Barak. God's word stirred them to risk their lives to the death, to give it all, to put their necks on the line, to offer themselves. And friends, God's word summons us into no less today. God calls us to risky obedience for His name's sake. To offer our lives for His glory. Listen to what John Piper says. He says, a choice lies before you. Either waste your life or live with risk. Either sit on the sidelines 
or get in the game. After all, life was no cakewalk for Jesus, and he didn't promise it would be any easier for his followers. We shouldn't be surprised by resistance and persecution, yet most of us play it safe. We pursue comfort. We spend ourselves to get more stuff, and we prefer to be entertained. We are all tempted by the idea of security, the possibility of a cozy Christianity with no hell at the end. But what kind of life is that really? Friends, are you living a safe kind of Christianity? I want to encourage you to boldly witness to that person that God has put in your life, that you've been fearful about sharing the gospel with them. Go ahead and do what God has called you to do. Look in your life and see where are the areas in your life where you've chosen your own comfort over wholehearted commitment and passionate service to the Lord. I want to encourage you and charge you, brothers and sisters at ECC, and especially the younger ones here, begin praying and begin aspiring towards the mission field. That we would send you back, not just to your home country, but to the most unreached parts of planet Earth, where it is hard that you would take the gospel to those who have never heard. Get all in, in serving the church, in loving your brothers and sisters, in evangelism, in discipleship. I also want to commend those of you who are already doing this, just like this song commends so many of these warriors who put their lives on the line, who gave it their all. I want to commend you, brothers and sisters, who are living with fire and passion for the glory of God, who are fully involved and engaged in the mission of the church. God bless you. But notice that this song not only praises those who risk their life with their confidence in God, it also rebukes those who held back. In fact, it even pronounces a curse on those who basically sided with the enemy and didn't come to Israel's help. Look again at verses 15 to 17. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still by, at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. What you're seeing here is the beginnings of what we'll see happen again and again in the book of Judges and culminate at the end. There's already a fracture in the unity of the tribes of Israel. There's fractures among the people of God. And, and these guys, this tribe, Reuben, they were in total indecision, searchings of heart. Ah, oh, should we do it? Should we not? They were sitting around campfires and listening to music and tuning out the trouble in their hearts. And then you have these other tribes, Gilead, Dan, Asher. They, they didn't just have total indecision. They were marked by total indifference. They didn't even care that their brethren were at war. They're just carrying on with their lives, hanging out by their ships when they should be leading in the fight. And I want to speak this word of a gracious rebuke to those of you who are a part of our church, who are members even of ECC, maybe you show up here Sunday every couple of weeks, and you're just marked by kind of an indecision, indifference, non-involvement, you're just playing it safe, happy to receive the word and participate at, at, at a far level, but not really get involved, not really give it your all. 
You know, it's a common statistic that pastors joke about, not at our church, but it's all around the world. They say 20% of people do 80% of the work. May it not be so at ECC, brothers and sisters. Dear members, let's step it up. Let's get engaged. We're engaged in a spiritual war. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Eternity is at stake. What you do in and through the local church and for the glory of God will carry on and resound into eternity. And then look at this town. There was one more town here, verse 18. Look at these guys. They get a curse. Curse Miros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord to, he- to the help of the Lord against the mighty. These guys were so indifferent to the people of Israel, their brothers, they had basically sided with the Canaanites. That's why they get a curse. They not only don't get involved, they don't come to the help, and and they kind of help the Canaanites in doing so. And I want to say that's the lives of some professing Christians even today. You might be here, you might even be a member of ECC, but you are basically living your life sided with the world your life looks no different than the Canaanites. Or you might be here and, you know, I want to speak to you very graciously. You've been attending for a long time. You come to church every week, but you don't want to make the commitment to church membership. You don't want to take upon yourself the biblical obligations to your brothers and sisters and the one another commands. You don't want to get involved in any way. You're happy to be an anonymous Christian who walks in and walks out, treating this like a mall. Friends, I want to speak to you. Don't live in that kind of way. God's word takes that kind of non-involvement very seriously. And let me also say to you, unity is not just about not creating division. Unity is also about being united in mission. Friends, it's crucial that we recognize that there is a spiritual war going on. And for those of us who are in Christ Remember this, we are on the winning side. So we must praise the Lord for His mighty power. We must participate in His holy mission. And our final third charge from this song is that we proclaim, proclaim the Lord's perfect victory. Right? The, the last section of this song, it powerfully portrays the victory of God against the enemy Sisera with images of these two women. Right? Yael who kind of behaved as a mother to Sisera and then killed him, and then Sisera's real mother. Look at verses 24 and following. Most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank... He fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. And you look at this contrast there uh, between these two motherly figures. Yael gave Sisera milk 
and put him to bed early while his real mother is out, wondering why he's out so late. And you might feel sympathy for that woman, but actually this man was a wicked, wretched man. And, and look at her own wicked words. When she says in verse 30, have they not found and divided the spoil a womb or two for every man? That, that literally, you know, the word there could mean, it's, it's like saying a wench or two for every man, a woman slave or two for every man. Look at how demeaningly this woman speaks of women. Sisera was a wicked guy. He treated these women as objects. He'd probably many times already in Israel's 20-year history raped many women in Israel. He was a cruel tyrant, an enemy of God. And God brings justice upon him, for he is crushed by a woman. And verse 31 proclaims, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. You know, last week we saw the fat king of Moab, fat baby cow, pierced with a double-edged sword, dead in his own blood and dung. This week we see the serpent commander Sisera's head nailed to the ground with a tent peg. And such will be the final state of all the enemies of God. Because our God will be victorious. And His victory must be embraced and proclaimed. Did you see verses 10 and 11? Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of His villagers in Israel. His victory must be proclaimed and celebrated. And dear friends, I want to say to you, we, in Christ have a far, far greater victory to proclaim. Because you see, the mighty, powerful Lord God, who went out to fight for His people at Mount Tabor, actually would go up to Mount Tabor once again. And maybe you don't realize this, but Matthew chapter 17, maybe you've heard of this incident, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, it's re recorded for us in three of the Gospels. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It's traditionally assumed that the probable sight of Jesus' transfiguration, the mountain that he took up James and Peter and John, and shone like the sun before them, and they heard the Father's voice, was Mount Tabor. And he went there and showed his glory. And he drew out the enemy into battle. Only this time it was a far greater enemy than Sisera. In fact, it was the one whose power stood behind Sisera and behind every enemy of God. That great old enemy and snake named Satan. Now mighty Lord Jesus went out to battle against this foe and against all the powers of darkness. And he crushed the head of the serpent. Not by nailing Satan's head to the floor, but by being nailed to a cross himself. Bearing the penalty for our sins. He destroyed all the iron chariots of Satan's accusations against us. But he did so by being pierced and wounded for our sin, by pouring out His blood. 
And by his death and resurrection, he then pierced and crushed the serpent's head. Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, who shines like the sun in his glory, the offspring of the woman, crushed the serpent's head, and now he calls to us to come to him that we might receive forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life and be conscripted and called into his victorious army. If you are in Christ, you are on the winning side. If you don't know him, dear friends, there is a coming a day of judgment when you, together with all the enemies of God, will face eternal punishment. And so I want to call to you, if you don't know Jesus, to turn to him today, to hear his call summoning you to repentance and faith and eternal life. Look at the end of our song. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. Jesus went up to Mount Tabor and his face shone like the sun. He still shines like the sun. But here the promise is that for his friends, and, and the original reads, if you look at the, uh, some of the other translation, it says those who love him will shine like the sun. And we will have not rest for 40 years, but eternal rest in the presence of God, shining like the sun. And so the key question for you this morning is, do you love Him? Do you love Him? Do you love Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty power and so great a Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. May we love him. and May we offer ourselves willingly for his glory and his victory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.